0: Strange stories of peculiar people and extraordinary events throughout history. This is Notorious Narratives. Are you ready? I'm ready. And welcome to Notorious Narratives. I'm Jen. And I'm Robin. And tonight, I'm going to talk about what is. Did you just literally hurt yourself? Like right in the middle of the introduction. I'm fine. I'm not sure you are. Anyway, so tonight I'm going to talk about one of my most favorite topics, which might seem a little creepy. I'm going to call it a, it's a Jen's um, stew of her interests. I have been waiting for this. So tonight I'm going to talk about one of my favorite topics, which is the Chicago World's Fair and the serial killer H.H. Holmes. I feel like you can't really talk about one without the other, but I feel like it really blends together all of my favorite things, which are history, sociology, anthropology, true crime, a bit of paranormal. Like it gives, it's like everything that I love. It's so when that Eric Larson book, Devil in the White City, came out, I already knew these stories, but his very finite and very succinct descriptions and well-researched story about this really like made me like completely fall in love even more so with this. You're so
1: excited about it. Yeah. I
0: am literally busting at the seams <laughs> and have been for weeks since I started the research. I will warn you ahead of time, everyone, there is going to be a lot of history, a lot of architecture. There will be some true crime. And it is going to be a very long episode, so strap in, kids. We're usually 20 minutes, and I mean, probably I've already been talking for five. It's going to get long. It's going to get verbose. Anyway, so I have 15 pages of notes, so let's get into this. This is the story of 19th century Chicago. It's a tale of optimism, Mm -hmm. grandeur and murder for me one of my favorite stories as i said before so i'm going to start with a quote from herman webster mudgett who would later be known his last name was mudgett i'm sorry it's pretty clear why he changed his name i mean there were there were actual reasons and we'll get there later but but yeah if your name was mudgett you probably want to be thought of as holmes too anyway so i'm going to start with a quote from herman webster mudgett who was later be known as america's first serial killer h.h holmes i was born with the very devil in me I could not help the fact that I was a murderer. No more than the poet can help the inspiration to song, nor the ambition of an intellectual man to be great. The inclination to murder came to me as naturally as the inspiration to do right comes to the majority of persons.
1: I mean, he literally he's a great writer.
0: He literally compares himself to a fucking poet. Yeah. It's like, are you a sociopath? Certainly. Are you an asshole? Absolutely. Are you a piece of shit con artist, spoiled fucking rich brat? Absolutely. Yes. So you, so a poet you are not, (laughs) by any stretch of the imagination. Certainly not a stupid man.
1: He's nah, yeah. He's he's very smart because he kind of in that writing I feel he sort of made you feel sorry for him.
0: Oh yes, there's a lot of that.
1: Yeah, I. uh, This is who I am, and you know I'm. I'm I just.
0: I just couldn't help myself. I just, I just,
1: just, I just myself. love to murder. It's crazy. I just
0: couldn't help myself. I just love to see what the insides look like. All right. All right. I, so I'm going to tell you a little bit of how it all ends. I'm going to pour. You go ahead and pour yourself that glass of wine because, girl, you're going to need it. So I'm going to begin at the end. On May seventh, eighteen 1896, Henry Howard Holmes was executed by hanging for the murder of his associate, Benjamin Peitzel. Despite Holmes's confession of killing 27 other people, he is officially only linked to nine murders, though some estimate that he had killed nearly 200. Well. So his numbers are all over the place. We will get there later. I will talk to you about H.H. Holmes after I talk to you about Chicago, 1893, the beginning of H.H. Holmes and the Chicago World's Fair, sort of the um, anthropologic reason that these people were able to be treated in this way, okay. how he got away with it. Is really because of this World's Fair that was there that brought throngs of people from all over the world. And they came there, and this isn't a time when somebody can you can text and tell them that you got there safe. This he used is that
1: to the advantage.
0: Of course he did. So the eighteen ninety three World's Fair in Chicago, known at the time as the Columbian Exposition, because it was meant to celebrate the four hundredth anniversary of Christopher Columbus's arrival in the Americas. Though you'll notice it happened in 1893. Robin, what year did Columbus 1492. land? 1492. You'll notice it is 401 years later because mm, it ran a little late. A little late? They just ran a year late. I mean, they built a whole city, so, you know, forgive them.
1: Well, so a thought that counts, right?
0: It really is. It's the sentiment of the situation, not necessarily the perfection of Right? The enormous exposition featured many wondrous exhibits, including the United States' first gas-powered motor car, the Daimler Quadricycle, and a 1,500-pound statue of Venus made completely of chocolate. What? However, the World's Fair became better known for a structure uh, that was more gruesome than the organizers had ever imagined, and that was the murder castle of Mr. H.H. H. Holmes. So we're going to talk all about that. So all about how these two things sort of intertwine, intermingle. We're going to talk about H.H. Holmes's Murder Castle. We're going to talk about
1: Castle. the God. World's
0: Fair, the White City, the architects that created that.
1: It's a great band name, Murder Castle.
0: I'm sure there is one. I'm going to talk to you about the World's Fair, which right. I wish that I had gone to so bad that it like makes my insides like quiver. I'm so excited about the Chicago World's Fair. I have a history boner so hard right now. It is... <laughs> So, so bad. Like you touch me and it'll just pop. get all right, I'm getting a lot bothered. Okay. Oh so it was a world's fair that was fully representative of and fully exemplified the gilded age which is the era that went from 1870 to 1900 that was one of dramatic and tremendous industrial and financial growth during um the americans were like really, really? getting very yep. wealthy mm-hmm. so it was a lot of wealth building in america that i know um it was an age during which america also expanded its global reach and influence mm-hmm. The World's Columbian Exposition was worthy of and capably responded to a nation whose cities were growing rapidly and explosively in population, development, and commerce, one in which, growing fast and powerfully, were the number of people who had the means to enjoy entertainment." And amusements. We talked about this in another episode, how this is really the first time that people had money for leisure activities. It wasn't just about the, you know, just the needs of daily living. We're talking about like – right, yeah. theater, carnivals. They're able to go to theater, carnivals. They're able to establish the things that they enjoy, such as like art, architecture, design, decoration. They're able to decorate their homes. They're going to clothes. shows. Absolutely. Their clothing. Mm-hmm. So it's fashion, art, Um, A fitting event and spectacle for the Gilded Ages in America was the World's Columbian Exposition in 1893. The exposition was built by some of the most amazing and talented architects and designers of the day. Architects Daniel Burnham and John Root of the firm Burnham & Root were talented Chicago architects that while Burnham had received no formal training, he was more the business side, while Root was really the designer. Uh, they had done major master plans for the design of whole cities such as Manila, Chicago, and downtown Washington, D.C. So when you walk through, you can see like those beautiful facades in D.C., and it's very similar to the white city that is built for. Chicago World's Fair they had a saying in their um they had a saying in their firm which was make no small plans so they were big thinkers big dreamers so John Root was a little bit more of the designer um while Burnham was more of the businessman he was more of the like hustler he was the one who like got the permits he's the one who talked the mayor into Mm -hmm. shit together they designed they designed the Washington DC train station As well as the Flatiron Building. One of the most famous buildings that they designed, though, was the Rookery Building in downtown Chicago, which is really known because if you go inside, there's a huge, large atrium, which was very bizarre in that day architecturally to figure out how to create this huge open space without supports. They had figured out a way to lay an iron lattice work on the ground that created an additional support for the building, so they only needed the... Yeah. Outer walls and that Atlanta's you didn't need. Work
1: is still work today. Yeah,
0: the rookery building's still there. So another person who was involved in the construction of the White City was Frederick Law Olmsted, who was a famous landscape architect who at the time had designed the plans for Brooklyn as well as Central Park. He was brought in and he did marvelous things at the World's Fair. As did Louis Sullivan, who was the mentor of Frank Lloyd Wright, and he is also known as the father of skyscrapers. So overall, people doubted that Chicago was a good place to have a World's Fair. They bid it against other cities such as New York. Um, I forget the other cities, but (laughs) there were other cities that were up for it. It's like the Super Bowl. It's like every year they like hustle and they put together their plan and they're like, hey, we want to have this event here and this is why our town's great. So Chicago did win the bid but people didn't really understand why they people chose Chicago. And
1: great city.
0: It is, but you'll remember if you think about the timing, so this is 1890s. Also
1: so about city. 20 years <laughs>
0: well about 20 years prior, they'd had the Great Chicago Fire. Yeah, they did. So mm-hmm. and in the Great Chicago Fire, which burned from Sunday October 8th to tuesday october 10th of 1871 just about 20 years earlier <clears throat> and that fire had killed 300 people and dis- destroyed roughly 3.3 square miles of chicago and left a hundred thousand residents homeless so this was still like a major this is a major problem it wasn't you know it had not been completely solved
1: and then they just built a brand new chicago on top of the old ones so exactly it, but that's what i love about it is that you're walking around and you're going over these bridges and you're walking these streets and then underneath it is a whole other city. I love Chicago. There's a jazz club. I went to so many jazz clubs underneath there just like hanging out, drinking. I know. Drinking martinis, In the like, – whatever
0: that underground area. Is it it's, the underground? <laughs> Probably <laughs> called the underground. Because of this great fire and the status of the citizens, there was a significant amount of crime that was going on. So Chicago just didn't have a great reputation at the time. But – the World's Columbian Exposition, or the Chicago World's Fair, testified to all that 22 years after the Great Chicago Fire, the city was rebuilt and healthy and rehabilitated. The fair covered over 700 acres and included 200 buildings. The exposition's exhibits showcased emerging technology, anthropology, art, culture, zoology, horticulture, religion, guns, and artillery. And a partridge in a pear tree.
1: <laughs>
0: ba dum <laughs>
1: they a building that's awesome.
0: <sighs> they that built, is. they literally built a city. That is. And that oh. city was built with wood and covered in white plaster. And that's why they call it the, the White city.
1: city.
0: We'll get there. I'm going to talk about it a lot. Oh, it's going to be extensive. I want
1: to, I want to go to there.
0: I know. Why don't they do shit like this anymore? But they do actually discuss, like, in um, a lot of the research I looked at, it's like, you know, you look at like amusement parks today, like mm-hmm. Disney World, Universal. The They're concept. sort of the same concept except these are – this was built to be a temporary structure. Those are permanent.
1: If you actually think about it, I think that every every amusement park that I've been to was always a white fixture house with a different on and color. Yeah. So from top view, it is the white city.
0: Yeah. Well, there you go. The White City continues. Exhibitors participated from over 60 countries. Modern urban planning was ushered in with the program and system that brought this World's Fair to... Ju- uh, to- nope. to Nope. Try again.
1: Does this wine taste like buffalo wings without the spice? A little bit. A little bit. Am I <laughs> right?
0: Modern urban planning was ushered in with the program and system that brought about the World's Fair. So as... They were designing this whole giant city. They were like, (laughs) how the fuck are we going to get people here, right? Because they – I'll get there in a little bit. But they didn't necessarily build it directly in downtown. But also they knew people are going to be coming from around the world. So they had to really think about how to move people through it in a way where it didn't get stuck and people didn't get clogged. And so this is one of the first major events that they thought about, like how to – Transport. Well, and just how to plan – to have people in different areas to keep it from getting, like, just 300,000 so, people standing so on the spot. Was a
1: big logistical problem.
0: It's a huge logistical problem. You're talking about, like, trains, vehicles, boats, just
1: boats. actual
0: physical people walking.
1: Yeah, yeah.
0: So Mr. Root and Mr. Burnham of the Burnham and Root Architectural <laughs> firm resolved that the style of the structures that they wanted at the exposition would be French neoclassical, and would include buildings of extraordinary size and majesty.
1: I mean, why not?
0: Go big or go home. Bye. Um, in 1891, though, sadly, Root of Burnham and Root kind of worked himself to death.
1: Oh, he was a little no. bit of workaholic,
0: and he got a nasty pneumonia. And he ended up dying, and you'll remember he was more the designer of the affair. Yeah. So that kind of left Burnham holding the bag, and he had to become the oh. director of works for the fair. So he found himself a little bit in over his head, mm-hmm. but he did quickly take charge and did so effectively and brilliantly. He made a lot of really sketchy sort of decisions. I'm not going to talk too much about the so decisions it has to that do were with
1: made, money, though. Like money. Well, yeah, like it was he all was to about. Save a
0: buck? Oh, it was it. He had a budget, and the budget was the budget. So the budget it was, was, was all a, about. Yeah.
1: But then he didn't have that that extra eye of design to be like, yeah, no, maybe we can do this instead. Right.
0: I mean, he was an incredibly talented architect, but of the two of them, Root was a little more on the design element. He was a little bit more the businessman who kind of greased the wheels and made things sort of happen.
1: today. today it's mean, always Of course.
0: Yeah. There's always – every couple has the things that they're good at, right? Mm-hmm. And whether it's your partner in a law firm or your partner in a marriage, you know – each of you have to, like, remember what you're really good at and, like, not shit talk the other person. So he was left in the position where he had to be the creative manager as well as the project manager. That's a lot of pressure. For the planning of the grounds and the exposition. It's
1: like, did he work himself to death? Because it sounds like he kind of oh, should have, no.
0: like. So, no. <laughs> well, he kind of, he he did probably nearly work himself to death. So he actually lived in a small shack on the grounds the whole time that it was being built. He never left. His wife and children lived in Evanston, Indiana.
1: And he just lived in And the shack. he stayed
0: there and lived in the shack because he literally could not leave the property because there were projects going on oh, 24-7 yeah. for multiple years. The organizing board chose the landscape architect, Frederick Law Olmsted, as we talked about before, who has already had like a huge name. He was essentially the biggest landscape architect known. He also did the Biltmore Estate in North Carolina, which... Er- Yes, all of those retardedly beautiful pictures. Oh, my guess The landscaping of the Capitol building. This is like his shit. I'm actually not sure that anyone's ever been as good at this as this man. Because if you look at him now, like, what are we talking, like 140 years later?
1: He's still, he's still known. He
0: made fucking Central Park. He made the Biltmore State. People still visit there just to mm-hmm. look at the grounds. They are breathtaking. So if you've not been to the Biltmore State, you should do that. So at this point, that left Burnham and Olmsted to really work together and be the lead architects on the exposition. In the planning of the landscape of the fair, Mr. Olmsted had two primary lieutenants. Harry Codman, an architect in the firm um, that Mr. Olmsted had founded, and as well as a – he was also a – he was also a full-time landscape architect. Um, then there was also Calvert Vaugh, who was an Englishman who had actually worked with him to create Central Park. So they had a pretty – decent team of people who were like working together to create this. So the next thing they really had to think about is like, where are we going to do this? We need a lot of space. Where are we going to get a lot of space in a city? Just like every city, there's always some sort of unusable land nearby. And that was the case. In the nearby area of Jackson Park, which was a swamp at the time, which had been the previous site of the Union POW camp, Camp Douglas, which is notorious for having over 5,000 deaths of Confederate soldiers there. Oh, no. Yeah. I was like reading and I read it. I was like, Camp Douglas, Camp Douglas, ding, 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 ding. Something feels weird. Something feels weird. I'm just going to do a quick Google search. And I was like, that's right that Camp Douglas. Oh so another time another episode. We can't even really get started there. But a lot of people died there. Not great. So, um so they got to work and they turned the swamp into usable land. This project brought in 40,000 jobs to Chicago in the spring of 1891, which caused a ton of apartments and hotels to crop up in the nearby area of Jackson Park. This whole city was made of plaster of paris that was spread over wood frames. The idea behind this was it was very cheap it was much cheaper than any other stone surface. Also, the city was only supposed to be temporary; they only needed it to stand for six months. Plaster of Paris can stand up for about uh, about a year, so they were like, "That'll do." And it's significantly cheaper. And what would they do if they had made the city of marble? Where would all the fucking marble go after? Another fun fact that is worthy of a Robin's fun fact mm-hmm. is that they were running so far behind when it got time to, like, open, that they needed to still paint tons of buildings. This is actually where they invented spray paint.
1: Oh, wow. Yeah. That's cool. <laughs> they were just like, yeah, how... How to make it fast.
0: And they just... looked at a compressor, yeah. and they looked and at a hose and a is... nozzle, and they were like, we at have some... to figure it out.
1: Add some type of pressure to it and let it go. Yeah,
0: yeah. And they were like, we have to get these fucking things
1: painted. Yeah. It has to be white. Then... Everything must be white. Everything must be white. And then today, you you're actually carded when you buy spray paint because apparently people are ingesting it. I can't.
0: I have known people who have huffed paint in my I lifetime. Can't. One it's... of them has never been me, but I have known them. I'm not calling any of you out. All of my heart
1: smooches. Oh, my God. Do I know them?
0: You do. So <laughs> sculptures were brought in from around the world to, how, to just be – Decorative in all these many, many buildings, these 200 buildings, as well as in the landscape. There was also a beautiful lagoon, walking bridges. There was actually an entire island that was um, just designed to look like Japan. It was designed to look like Imperial Japan, which is just so beautiful to think about. But right now, I have a very serious topic to talk about, and that's the topic of Ferris wheels.
1: Oh, well, please continue.
0: So, the issue, the Chicago's World Fair... Was that the previous World's Fair had been in Paris and what had debuted at that one but the fucking Eiffel Tower.
1: Oh, so they needed a competition. So they wanted to come up with something
0: like some oomph. They were like, what do we do? And so George Ferris, this guy who created the Ferris wheel from Pennsylvania, he's like, hey, guys, let me put up a Ferris wheel. I'm going to make a fucking huge one for you. It's going to be fucking epic. And they're like, mm, hard pass. We're trying to be a little bit classier than that. We're not really looking for your your style.
1: Have you ever been in a Ferris wheel? But It's fucking classy all the
0: way. Lo and behold, the years go a tick and by and they don't come up with a better answer. So they get the Ferris wheel. This Ferris wheel can hold... 36 people in each of its boxes.
1: Oh, no. Yeah. It's a big,
0: (laughs) big motherfucker. No. Nobody died making it. Nobody has died on it. It's fine.
1: There is no way in hell. Oh, my God. (laughs) On the same loop, there's other buckets. Yeah. That also has thirty-six people. A lot. People? There's a lot. Yeah. No, 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 it, no, no. It's not great. Look up the
0: pictures. It's. I mean, it's pretty amazing. Anyway.
1: Oh, I'm gonna. I'm sorry. I'm gonna. I'm gonna look it up.
0: Look it we, up. Chicago World's Fair Ferris wheel. It's
1: fucking ridiculous. It's big.
0: It's a big bad boy. So.
1: <clears throat> oh my God! This thing is fucking huge. Yeah. It's yeah. like it's like a fucking. I'm sorry. So, so much so much language, but like. It's
0: hey, we've already gotten the bad iTunes review. Just let it ride. (laughs)
1: Yeah. So imagine, if you guys are not looking this up, imagine a stagecoach of a train or a subway car, one car, and this car is laid sideways attached to the wheel. And there is multiple of them.
0: Oh, yeah. So the Ferris wheel was definitely something to behold. I can't. And it was only one of many, many grand things. So they built this amazing white city on this, like, shitty tract of land south of Chicago. They made use of unusable land, and they built this amazing area for exposition that brought the world together, right? It's like people from around the world are there. They're showing their art, their architecture, their cultures. Absolutely. Absolutely. After all the hard work and all the struggle, opening day comes. May 1st, 1893, 300,000 people gathered to see the white city that was built along the Chicago River an elegant city of canals and columns that had been built in just those two years. The buildings were of immense and grand proportions.
1: Can you imagine the World's Fair and everyone's representing themselves? Like the smell of foods, all the different kinds of foods, yeah, from this the culture was... and all of the like homemade things that people yeah. made. And, just... and this is
0: probably things that these people have never seen before. Because oh, I mean, I'm sure some of them have come from very far away, but a lot of them are probably near to their home Mm -hmm. then. They're not from overseas. On the morning of the opening, a parade of dignitaries spoke from a platform outside the administration building. This building, which resembled a smaller version of the U.S. Capitol building, was part of what was called the Court of Honor, which was a collection of six enormous buildings that were surrounded by a pool of water. There was a fountain in the shape of a boat that was housed at one end of the basin. At the other end of the basin was a 65-foot statue that rose up of a robed woman holding a globe and a staff wearing a wreath of laurel around her head and was intended to symbolize the American Republic. It was real fucking fancy looking. It was just very... It was... It was overwhelming for those people. This is, like, grandeur of a magnitude that has not been seen on American soil. Yeah,
1: like, for some reason, like, you, you say that, like, that one statue of the woman with, like, the globe in her hand. For some reason, the first thing that popped in my head was Mother Nature. No, just
0: the Republic. One of the big things about the Chicago World's Fair is that it's almost it's not like a a spitting in the eye, but it's like, hey, look how far we've come in this four hundred mm-hmm. years. We didn't oh, yeah, exist totally. four hundred years ago. And now look at what we've built. Mm-hmm. Look at how we are able to welcome in other cultures. Look at how we're able to really, you know, build these amazing sculptures yeah. and figure out ways to bring all these people in and how we were able to have the money to do this. So, so much money. It's a little bit of a big dick swinger. So. <laughs> Chicago was hoping to have a bigger dick than Paris. That's ideally.
1: Yeah, because they wanted to the like, into- <laughs> Oh, you just you just put up this giant tower. Cool.
0: Also, fun fact, Eiffel Tower was also supposed to be temporary. I'm going to tell you about one of my favorite people, Louis Comfort Tiffany. So Louis Comfort Tiffany designed a chapel of breathtaking beauty that was on display within the exhibit of Tiffany & Co. The jewelry firm founded by his father, designed and crafted in the Byzantine style, this chapel held in awe by all of the exposition attendees with its intricate constitution of multicolored reflective glass, ornately carved pillars and arches, and baptismal font with an electric chandelier. Mr. Tiffany was already well known for his work, though his star would rise very fast after people had seen this chapel. Absolutely. So you have these giant buildings, you have these this beautiful chapel, you have these huge statues, this boat fountain. And what else do you have there? Motherfucking electricity. Oh. They light the whole city. So that incandescent electric light, that electricity that illuminated the white city, resulted from a battle of iconic and giant American companies and technologies. General Electric and its direct current versus Westinghouse Electric and its alternating current which we all know was like the huge battle, was like which one was going to be the one. Uh, We all know that she sort of won that battle. Mm -hmm. But Westinghouse won in this case. So Westinghouse's bid to power the Chicago World's Fair proposed 93,000 incandescent lamps um, with 70 cents per lamp lower than the Edison bid. So Westinghouse won. But its bid was so low that throughout the run of the exposition, it was running in place and bleeding money. Yeah, they essentially, they couldn't keep it actually running for the price that they said.
1: That GE comes in.
0: GE did not come in and fix it, though. During the fair, there was entertainment, carnival rides. Like I said, the Ferris wheel, uh, which was 264 feet high with 36 cars that could hold up to 36 people. It was also a big trade show. Innovation and invention were all on display there. So consider all of the amusements that you have there with the towering Ferris wheel, the one-mile midway plaisance section of the exposition. So they built this giant elevated walkway that's a whole mile long that was like the midway. So was where all the games were. So this layout marked the first time that the World's Fair had ever had separate areas for exhibits and amusements. So they kind of kept like the exhibits and like, Sort of fancier buildings and kept the midway a little bit separate. So also, for the first time at the World's Fair, they had national pavilions. forty six countries operated pavilions, in which, among other uses, were forums with which to make trade and tourism pitches. Among many of the well-loved commercial products, there are a few items that made their debut at the Chicago's World Fair that are still around today. Three of them that you will all recognize, one of which was cream of wheat, juicy for chewing gum. And Pabst Blue Ribbon.
1: What?
0: PBR made its debut. So, they also built a railroad terminal just behind the administration building. So, that opening day was the largest crowd that had ever been assembled in the United States. The fair was a marvel, the largest World's Fair to ever be held. Closest was the previous World's Fair in Paris, like I said before, mm-hmm. where the Eiffel Tower had debuted the total cost for this was 22 million dollars.
1: Oh my god.
0: <laughs> which I cannot even extrapolate how much money that is in today's money, but they actually did turn a small profit because they actually had over 28 million visitors in during the 6-month period that it was open.
1: Oh, okay.
0: The manufacturers and liberal arts building was the largest building in the world at the time. The fair actually had so many employees working there that they printed their own newspaper. They had actually become almost their own little city. Some of the exhibits that are notable, a lot of – it was a lot about, like, the biggest sort of exhibits. So it was, like, the biggest wheel of cheese, the biggest lump (laughs) of coal, and the world's biggest telescope. So some of the famous attendees were Henry Ford, Frank Lloyd Wright, who actually took great inspiration from the Asian buildings on the Japanese island to use for his architectural designs. Which
1: meant before, yeah.
0: There was also L. Frank Baum, who modeled the Wizard of the Wizard of Oz's Emerald City after the World's Fairs holy White City?
1: Shit. Yep. Oh wow! Oh my God, that's that that's, yeah. that's that's pretty cool. You know, I'm like, holy shit! You can literally <laughs> look at my
0: face like busting open with happiness. <laughs> Many feel that this exposition symbolized the optimism of the 19th century, thinking that if mankind has come this far, how much further can it go? Mm -hmm. People proposed that peace of mankind would soon follow. But just like this hope, the city was not built to last. The marble-looking exteriors were merely plaster over wood. As hundreds of thousands of people streamed into the city to see the fairs, exhibitions, or to look for employment, many hotels, lodgings, and restaurants had cropped up in order to house and feed the throng of revelers. And during that time, a monster lurked in the shadows. While I'm sure that there were many who were there to take advantage of these lonely traveling workers, few were as ruthless as H.H. H. Holmes. H.H. H. Holmes was born Herman Webster Mudgett in New Hampshire in 1861. I'll give you another little quote from him. I was born on May 16th in New Hampshire. With a boring childhood, I had many phobias, most of all from corpses, especially the skeleton in my doctor's office. So he goes on to tell a story in his memoirs about how he was forced into that doctor's office by some bullies. And they pushed him in front of this skeleton and he was terrified, terrified, terrified. And then he stands in the face of it and then he thinks, I'm not scared anymore. And he turns around and he looks at the bullies and he looks them in their faces and he says, I'll never know what they saw in my eyes, but they ran. And I think that's essentially his story. He seems unassuming, but he's a fucking monster. From then on, he was fascinated by human anatomy. My greatest treasures, he said, were the skeletons of skulls from the animals that he had killed. By the age of 16, he was working as a teacher, where he met his first wife, who he was married to in 1878. The marriage lasted only a short time. He left, though he was never actually legally divorced from her. He graduated from college and then went on to medical school. He wanted to go to medical school at the University of Michigan, and he did. But the reason why he wanted to go there was because they were well-known for their anatomic dissection department because there they got to actually dissect actual cadavers, yeah. human people, which was a primary interest of Mr. Holmes or Mr. Mudget, I guess, at that time. Mr. Mudgett. After medical school, he became part of a crew that worked to con life insurance policies by creating fake families. So there's a good portion of his life that's literally spent just being a con artist he creates these identities he takes out insurance policies on these identities then supplies the documents for their deaths and Mm -hmm. takes the money and he works with a crew during this time eventually he just cheeses it he says he's afraid he's going to get caught too many people are involved he never really stops doing that though that is the one thing he's always consistently trying to get money from insurance companies no matter what.
1: Well, I think that's because it's what he knows best right now at this point. He knows how to just talk to human he had, and he knows knowledge of – he's a smart man. He had so much money. When you
0: read about like the money he got from it's, life insurance it's policies, it's just never enough. It's, it's, never enough. Never enough. it's never like enough. he moved to Chicago with the ideas of becoming a druggist. In the state of Illinois, he had to take an exam to become a druggist. And at this point, he registered himself as H.H. H. Holmes, after the legendary detective Sherlock Holmes, written by Sir Arthur Conan Doyle. By the time H.H. H. Holmes arrived in Chicago in 1886, he was already a wanted man, a con artist, a bigamist. He had fled from one town to the next, avoiding prison time for various scams, including insurance fraud of a ghastly nature. Holmes was stealing and mutilating medical cadavers and pretending they were the victims of accidents in order to collect he money. Was
1: mutilating them to make them, yeah. Like so, it was a, oh my god. When so he instead was of, in, like dying in peace, he's like, oh, it was a homicide. Right.
0: So when he was in medical school, the cadavers that they had, he would mutilate in a certain way to try to manipulate the insurance the insurance also. companies. Right. Holy he fuck. was a charming well-dressed, intelligent, well-spoken. He was able to move through high society. And when he moved to Chicago, he posed himself as an inventor. And there he married Myrtle Belknap, who was the daughter of a wealthy businessman. Her father, though, was always a little bit suspicious of Mr. Holmes. Her father had accused him of trying to steal property from him and then attempting to poison him after he was confronted with the crime. So after he was confronted for this, he cheesed it. He left <laughs> Walnut, and he moved to Chicago proper.
1: And he left his wife, wa- his second his wife.
0: second wife stayed behind and eventually legally divorced him. She's like, yo, you're fucking nuts, and you're out. You're a liar, and you're nuts. In Chicago, Dr. H.H. H. Holmes found work as a pharmacist at Elizabeth S. Holton's drugstore. He eventually bought the store from Miss Holton, whom, curiously, after her sale to Mr. Holmes, disappeared. When people asked where she was, Mr. Holmes would say that she had moved to California to be near her family. Every part of this man's story is essentially based on the fact that there is no quick form of communication. So when people go somewhere, you have to wait.
1: How can they communicate with California? Exactly.
0: Right. A written letter. But to do that, you have to have an address. A
1: very long time.
0: Yeah. And you're going to have to wait a good amount of time. Mm -hmm. Shortly before the start of the Columbian Exposition, Dr. Holmes purchased an empty lot across the street from the drugstore. On the lot, he built a massive three-story house that took up a city block, which the locals called the Castle. On the first floor of the building, he operated and owned a drugstore, at which he worked as a pharmacist. Other businesses were located on this floor as well. He quickly began plans on building what he called, what is now referred to as, historically, the Murder Castle which was a three-story building that took up that entire block. It was on 63rd and Wallace. Holmes called it the World's Fair Hotel to accommodate tourists who were arriving in droves for the 1893 Columbian Exposition. But his victims of choice? I'll let you just take a wild
1: guess, Robin. Young women.
0: Young women. Young women. Yay. Ding, 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 ding. Robin gets another glass of wine. Thank you. Young female drifters searching for a new and exciting life in the big city. In an article written in 1937, the Chicago Tribune described Mr. Holmes's murder castle in this way. Oh, what a queer house it was. In all America, there was none other like it. Its chimneys stuck out where chimneys should never stick out. Its stairways ended nowhere in particular. Winding passages brought the uninitiated with a frightful jerk back to where they had started from. Where the rooms had no doors. Where the doors had no rooms. A mysterious house it was indeed. A crooked house, a reflex of a builder's distorted own mind. In that house occurred dark and eerie deeds.
1: This is the Winchester house?
0: No, this is the murder castle.
1: So he made it just like that, like kind of... It made it look like it was, it was impressive, but really it's a decoy.
0: There's a lot to it. All right. Historians believe Holmes, a masterful and charismatic con artist, had swindled money from the drugstore employers. He purchased that empty lot across the street and built this labyrinthine structure. The edifice became Holmes's booby-trapped murder castle. Booby
1: traps. So there were like, more like like a Sweeney Todd situation, right? If Sweeney
0: Todd and Winchester Mystery House had a baby,
1: this is it. Yeah. Got yeah, it. There you go. Got it.
0: So you are spot the fuck. I'm on. like,
1: I'm like, I'm trying to picture it in my head. I was like, wow, all these like mysterious. If you actually Google it, there stores, are people. No.
0: There are people who have actually drawn out what they think it may have looked like. Got it. This space featured soundproof rooms, mm-hmm. secret passages, and a disorienting maze of hallways and staircases. The rooms were also outfitted with trap doors, overshoots that dropped Holmes's unsuspecting victims to the building's basement.
1: It's unbelievable. So, <laughs> he, like, so he made long, crazy corridors in case anyone escaped from a room and they got discombobulated and couldn't escape. And then he also made trap doors go to the basement where there's nowhere else to go.
0: Oh, yeah. And in the basement was a macabre facility of acid vats, pits of quicklime, as well as a crematorium, oh, Jesus Christ. in which the killer used to finish off his victims.
1: Oh my God!
0: Areas on the second and third floors were often used for other pursuits, and were designed and built to accommodate those. These pursuits were torture, killing, dismemberment, dissection, and destruction of evidence. On the upper two floors, designs feature design features included rooms with no windows. Some of which were equipped with gas jets, which would asphyxiate victims, trap doors, stairways, and hallways with dead ends, peepholes, and chutes down which bodies could be slid into the basement. As the basement is where he kept his dissecting table. Some bodies that Dr. Holmes had stripped of tissue and flesh and then placed into the incinerator or the furnace or chemically destroyed with the quicklime. What remained were the skeletons. And he would assemble those and sell them to medical schools.
1: Oh my God. How many of those skeletons do you think are out there right now? Like, how many? So, you like if you
0: really like, like. I've heard a lot about H.H. Holmes, and you can. There's definitive evidence where you can really, really link nine
1: murders. So, yeah? nine, all right? So, take those nine and subtract so, so three. Being... Subtract so three. Because. Ugh.
0: There's his partner and the two children, which they kind of have accounted for. So minimum of six that okay. are probably sold to medical schools. So,
1: so there's there's very
0: possibly still
1: there are six victims of him, the skelet- medical school skeletons in 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 the world.
0: It's yeah, it's possible, I suppose. Mm-hmm. Yeah. I hate everything about that. Oh
1: God, I'm just like, I walk by one every, every day.
0: <laughs> yeah. I walk by them a lot at work. Um,
1: so Jesus Christ. Oh, right.
0: How Mr. Holmes managed to have the castle constructed without its purpose being discovered is that he allowed no carpenter or tradespeople to work long on the project before firing them. So nobody ever really knew what he was up to. H.H. Holmes has been called America's first serial killer. If not the nation's first serial killer, certainly the nation's most prolific first serial killer. He primarily, but not exclusively, murdered young women. He made a house. He did. Mm -hmm. Prior to the start of the World's Fair, he found an abundant source of victims among those employed in his pharmacy. While the Columbian Exposition was open and his gruesome crimes had not yet been discovered, Dr. Holmes ran within the castle... "...into an enterprise in high demand in the vicinity of the international event that tens of millions of people attended. For many, this hotel would be one in which the check-in was permanent. With the fair ongoing, victims unknowingly arrived at their doom into this house of horrors. Within the castle, H.H. H. Holmes murdered at a feverish pace." A serial perpetrator of many crimes, H.H. H. Holmes got out of Chicago before the diabolical work within the castle was discovered. He traveled across the United States and into Canada and continued to kill. The Peitzel family were the known victims of Holmes, Father Ben and his three children, daughters Alice and Nellie, and little son Howard. The family was killed during the fall of 1894. Instead of using a cadaver, Holmes used his former business partner, Ben, as part of an insurance fraud scheme. Oh. Holmes knocked Ben out and killed him by setting him on fire. On July 15, 1895, Alice and Nellie's bodies were found in a Toronto cellar. Later authorities found teeth and pieces of bone among the charred ruins that belonged to young Howard in an Indianapolis cottage that had once been rented by Holmes. So... He had killed his business partner, Mm -hmm. gotten the insurance money, taken the wife and children, told them a story that they were going to, like, go, and he was going to take care of them. And they took off, and then bit by bit, he took them out. Of Holmes's assumed victims were Julia and her daughter Pearl Connor in 1891, Emmeline Segrand in 1892, and sisters Minnie and Nanny Williams in 1893. Minnie had actually married Holmes, who swindled her out of her inheritance. The bodies of Julia, Emmeline, Minnie, and Nanny were never found, but rumor had it Holmes had sold their bodies as cadavers to the medical schools. He had consistently stated that Julia and Emmeline died while undergoing illegal abortions.
1: Oh, fuck you. Way to blame
0: the victim, motherfucker. What a piece of shit. Oh my God. And Julia was allegedly Holmes's lover, and Emmeline was Holmes's former secretary, whom he purportedly proposed to. Super into young girls. While searching Holmes's hotel, authorities recovered Minnie's watch chain and Nanny's garter buckle in one of the ovens. Although forensic evidence was rudimentary at the time, bones found in the basement most likely belonged to 12 year old Pearl Connor, who was allegedly <sighs> poisoned.
1: God.
0: As for Emmeline, the police believed they had come upon her heron bones. One account claims that an eyewitness saw Holmes and his janitor haul out a big trunk the day after her disappearance. Although there is a lengthy list of other potential victims that Holmes may have murdered, these nine have been plausibly attributed to the serial killer's killing spree. So these are like his legit crimes. Because nine is enough but
1: 200 is too aggressive to actually
0: but uh, who is to say because if you have this type of establishment where people can come in and just go missing at a time in the world where people are going on an adventure in their lives and they're like
1: you know oh, mom oh let's go
0: mom i'm going to go to chicago i'm going to work at the world's fair and i'm going to meet a nice man and we're going to get married and they leave hotel.
1: Yeah. And they
0: write a few letters.
1: Charismatic man. Who knows how many
0: actually left and mm -hmm. went missing. I I would, it would be. Especially if there
1: was a fucking oven.
0: And people didn't, you know, report people missing then. No, no. People just were gone. All right. So, well, I mean, he did get his due. So just before his execution, Holmes was said to be pleasant and calm. The only request that he had was for his body to be buried 10 feet deep in the ground with his casket encased in cement because he didn't want grave robbers to dig up his body and use it for dissection. <laughs> Isn't that fucking sweet? <laughs> well, he was so eager to cut people up his whole fucking life.
1: Is he even allowed to request that at that point? Oh, I don't know like, if they did well, it. Gonna like, yeah. I They're just not. like, I guess that's your request. Hope not. Like anyway. we're gonna yeah, we're gonna do whatever the fuck we want with you, so. buddy.
0: <laughs> I hope they did just dress him up and like just dance with him I Just every manner every of thing fucking that fucking thing yeah. that you can do to somebody that's completely disrespectful. When Holmes was finally hung from the gallows, it was said that his neck did not snap. I'm Holmes, guaranteed of course it didn't. that they did not tie it the way they were supposed to because they did not want it to snap. Instead, he died a slow death. Good. his body twitching, until he was finally pronounced dead 20 minutes later.
1: 20 minutes of hanging?
0: Dis- <laughs> yes. Holy shit. Despite Holmes's arrest and execution, rumors have persisted for more than a century that the serial killer bribed authorities to avoid punishment. Mm-hmm. The theory suggests that Holmes was allowed to escape and that officials hanged another man. In response to these rumors, in March of 2017, Holmes' descendants, who live in Delaware, petitioned to have his remains exhumed so that they can undergo DNA testing. The DNA testing results are expected soon.
1: So, we don't know if it's actually him or not? No. Holy fuck.
0: Meanwhile, the fate of the site of the killer's exploits, the murder castle, is also shrouded in intrigue. While Holmes allegedly safely ensconced in prison in 1895, the murder castle was gutted by fire after witnesses reportedly saw two men entering the building late one night.
1: So they burned the evidence.
0: The building itself remained standing until 1938 when it was finally torn down, and the site is now occupied by the Englewood branch of the United States Post Office. While the buildings constructed during the World's Columbian Exposition were supposed to only be temporary also their demise was hastened following the closing of the exposition by three major fires so chicago and fire not doing great not great About 20 years before huge fire murder castle fire Add in world's holes. fair fire back to the world's fair for just a moment okay of the original columbian exposition buildings only two remain and can be visited today the Palace of Fine Arts, which now houses the Museum of Science and Industry, yeah, and the World's Congress Auxiliary Building, which today is the home of the Art Institute of Chicago. It makes me happy. So, a couple more kind of bizarre things to mention, I mean, just because more? I just can't stop, can't stop, won't stop. So currently in London. There is a new attraction that is based on the murder hotel that was built by H.H. Holmes. It is called the Hollow Hotel. It's much like an escape room. It's an interactive theater
1: experience. That's That's very cool.
0: So it seems a little bit like Sleep No More in the way that it is this like interactive theater experience that you all come in and then you get sent to your rooms. I loved
1: Sleep No More. Yeah.
0: And then various things happen to you.
1: But that's pretty. Yeah, so it's an interactive play. Yeah, and it's it's based on interactive play,
0: also known as my favorite night.
1: (laughs) Can you imagine? Yeah, it'd be great. The best part of that
0: would be that you actually know that you're safe. Yeah, it's like, but
1: it's kind of like an interactive play versus Clue. Yes. But an overnight stay. Okay? So, yeah, it's, like,
0: it's essentially a little bit like a murder mystery meets an that. escape room. Mm-hmm. Is sort of the way that it's built. I just thought that it was funny that they actually have created this experience to sort of mimic the murder castle. The murder castle. And it's called the Hollow Hotel in London, which I think is pretty fucking cool. And if it is still going, I hope that they bring a little bit of that to New York because I will certainly go. So, yes. So they say that the... Site where he was hanged is haunted. They say that the site where he lived with the wife in Chicago is haunted. There are all of these sightings of H.H. H. Holmes, the ghost. Do
1: you think that, like... His... And apparently
0: he's quite a raunchy, angry ghost. Well, no,
1: no. Which no. you can only
0: imagine. <laughs> Hold on.
1: Hold on. Hold on. Do you think that the site of his hanging is actually haunted because then it might actually not be him and the guy who's betraying him is pissed off? I mean, yeah. If you were, like, like I'm hung... Not, I'm not him. Why Why the fuck are you doing this? And so you're I hung mean, by association? We can at least
0: hope that they hung another murderer, right? So, yeah, um, that is, that's my story. It's sad to say that even in the most beautiful places, monsters lurk in the shadows. The story of the Chicago World's Fair, the White City, and H.H. H. Holmes, just another notorious narrative. Thank you so much for listening. If you're enjoying the podcast, there are a couple of things that you can do to help us out. You can leave a positive review wherever you're listening now. You can also go to patreon.com forward slash Notorious Narratives, where you can access content that is exclusive for our patrons. And remember, keep it weird and never stop exploring.